Welcome to Screen Talk, a new words weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, I assume we're going to spend this whole podcast talking about the impeachment of our president, right? I'm all over Twitter. I got to say, um, <laughs> I seem to be disagreeing with some. I think they're. I think they're all going down. So I feel like we've been through this I'm narrative. In a good mood. We know how these movies end. <laughs> well, I just, we don't. I mean, we really don't. I, Watergate is my precedent. Yeah, it's nice that to have a, a time I, when Howard Baker and the Republicans didn't think that Nixon was as guilty as he turned out to be. And when they saw how guilty he really was, and it was in front of the whole world, and it was being covered by the media, they had no choice but to push him away. Well, you know that Emilio Antonio documentary, Point of Order, is a really great encapsulation because it's like the, you know, watching McCarthy kind of slowly dwindle into this shell of a creature as, you know, the whole have you no decency thing finally comes to a head. And it feels like we're building towards that in slow-mo on some level, but gosh, it's like it's pretty fast. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm, like, I'm excited. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's um, just funny. Cause it's like, we're talking about Oscar season, but this doesn't seem cycle. so important. Does it? Man. Well, we should try to talk about it because nevertheless, all of this stuff still matters in our little bubble. So the one world that overlaps really well with this is the documentary world. And what uh, came down yesterday was the Doc NYC shortlist of 15. And what's sort of notable about this, this is another, you know, the world's largest documentary film festival in November in New York. And and Tom Phillips, uh, listen to me, uh, Tom Powers, who I talk to uh, and you talk to regularly from- You're getting your Joker world and your documentary world. My Todd, uh, my Todd. So anyway, he is, he he sort of prides himself actually on figuring out um, a list of 15 that might be really close to what the Oscar shortlist will end up being. Although there's always a few exceptions because he programs a few things that might actually play well. For, for his audience in New York, things like uh, Ask Dr. Ruth, which um, I, I somehow don't see as one of the, the, the final five for the Oscars. But um, we expect every, most of I, these. I have to say, I mean, every year this thing comes out and uh, there, we talk about the sort of the subtle way and there, there's like a wink, wink element to it where it's not it's not an official, you know, Academy mandated, mandated shortlist that comes later, but it certainly plays a role in that narrative. It's influential because it helps people who are have enormous screener piles, um, you know, to, to widow down uh, some of the things that they, they need to see. I think most people in the doc world already know uh, some of the early front runners. It's kind of obvious. Apps, like American yeah. Factory and um, Apollo 11 and, uh, even this late-breaking movie that you've been touting uh, from Toronto, The Cave. Um, and Biggest Little Farm. and then well, Diego I think that's going to be a very popular movie. I'm not so sure. This could be the Mr. Rogers of this year, the, the one that's so great that everybody loves, but it doesn't get nominated because the people in the doc branch don't take it seriously. But it has been a, a commercial success. I mean, mm-hmm. non-film seen people. It. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's some, planes. Yeah, there's real value in that. And, and I do think that the filmmaking is, the, the, yes, there's a bit of an intrusive voiceover element and stuff, but it, filmmaking is better than, than that narrative gives it credit for. Oh, it's really well-made, well-crafted, yeah. engaging, and powerful movie. And it's also uh, emotionally 
gratifying because it's about the future that could be better, God forbid, if we if we sustainably farm and so on. There's something there's, uplifting about it. Yeah, and then there's some stuff on this list where I kind of feel like it's the obligatory feel-good documentary or the issue kind of documentary where it's maybe less about the filmmaking itself than it is about what it's pushing forward, whether it's something like Knock Down the House or The Elephant Queen, those kinds those of films. Those are the ones that I think they booked to play to the to the local audience. Where yeah, crowd think, and, and even Diego Maradona is a total crowd pleaser. But um, that's an incredible feat. Yeah, you and I l- agree. The archival is yeah, amazing. extraordinary what he does. I worry that Asif Kapadia, who made Amy and Senna, using a lot of these, he's refining these techniques as he becomes more sophisticated um, about how to use groups of people and archives and, and editing techniques. But he, people, he's, he's using the same way of making a movie, and I worry that people are going to hold that against him. You know yeah, I mean, I mean the, the thing it, that to me is like when people knock Wes Anderson for having a consistent aesthetic between his films or something, it's like why it's those movies are all very different just because he has a certain kind of approach that just seems sort of crass to me. If somebody I agree with it. I couldn't it. agree more. The, the other one that I think is coming along very nicely, and I'm glad they included this, uh, is The Edge of Democracy. Netflix had four movies on this list, more than anyone else, and uh, Neon had three. And then there are a couple of others that have that have more than one. But that that's um, Edge of Democracy is Petra Costa's movie about the, uh, the 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 far right taking over in Brazil, and it's a very instructive, uh, very instructive documentary that should be seen by everyone and widely available on Netflix at the yeah. Time. I'm I'm gonna watch. I, it's still a blind spot for me. I've, I missed it at Sundance, and I missed it on per- periodically throughout the year when I've had other opportunities, but. I have been following the situation in Brazil very closely with Bolsonaro saying all these crazy things and the president, you know, really kind of taking shots at the film industry and threatening to get rid of all this funding for films there and stuff. So it's kind of interesting because while there's this crazy president and and a lot of legitimate fears about the foundations of democracy, I've heard that this film being available on Netflix in Brazil is having a real impact. And so that's a great hack, which this relates to, um, because it's about Cambridge Analytica. It's the people who uh, who made the square, uh, Karim Amir and, and Jahan Mujaim, and they're they're a couple, and uh, they met on the square. And um, since Sundance, they completely overhauled this this movie, and it's it. I have to say, Eric, of of all the stories I've done this year, uh, this is the one that got the most traffic. Honestly, well, I mean, it's, it's along it's, with the greatest little farm, by the way. These well, are I mean, stories that got yeah. huge interest, and uh, and and, and, a, and a, I was talking to the Netflix people. This was widely watched. Well, when I was talking before about being in our little bubble, I mean, it really is true that for to a large degree, a lot of the movies that we talk about, you know, they they may be worth celebrating, but at the end of the day, their appeal is going to be somewhat narrow or, or, you know, very specific to audiences that are open. What you're talking about, I mean, Great Hack, I I thought had a lot of issues, but in terms of just explaining to you the kind of terror of laying your information bare on social media so someone else can exploit it and maybe even become president as a result. I mean, it's in Brazil. They were responsible for turning this around. And and to some degree here too. I love the liberal uh, president that they had, and then they were sh- they were fo- they were made to shift their point of view 
uh, by a lot of uh, agitprop uh, propaganda. So I don't think we, we shouldn't forget about One Child Nation here. That's obviously been screening really well ever since it won Sundance. And it's just a really impressive kind of balancing act between personal narrative and Chinese history. I mean, I the way that- I more impressed. I just happened to see it this week and talk to the filmmaker at the IDA series that we're involved with. And uh, I, I, was, I was very gut-wrenched by it and impressed by this 85-minute super sharp super focused, extraordinarily well-made movie. I mean, that feel, I, and I've been a, a fan of Nanfu Wang, who co-directed It's Her Story since her first film, Hooligan Sparrow, and then she made another film after that, I Am Another You, where she basically lived with a homeless guy on the streets. I mean, this is a person who actually pulls off that cliched device of putting yourself in front of the camera as, as a filmmaker. And in, in this case, it's, you could, it couldn't be more personal because of, her background in China. And it's, it's also an amazing kind of, you know, investigative journalism piece. And so to me, this feels like a film that could actually go all the way. Don't you think this is like a front runner? And, and I mean, they totally. have to win it down. But. My front runners on my uh, doc uh, list are One Child Nation and um, uh, American Factory and Edge of Democracy and um, uh, Apollo 11. Yes, we can't forget that. I think, and 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 I actually, I, I have to. I'm I'm putting Biggest Little Farm there. I'm I'm just. I hope it gets in. I I'm just worried. I'm worried that 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 this very discerning. You know, he he. There's an element of the sort of nature filmmaker anthropomorphizing the animals. I follow you. You know, that's where I feel like it, it, it's so family friendly. It shouldn't be penalized for that. But I worry about these super serious. Well, yeah, there's varying degrees of, of that sort of fancy. Elephant Queen is the one on this list. It's really family friendly. But as you say, it's maybe not the most prominent contender on this list. No. And then, but there, there's also releasing that and the way that they're releasing it is still under wraps. Yeah, well, it's a lot of people. State, but we don't even know. If, how many theaters, for how long, by what means are they booking it in theaters? We don't know this. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot about Apple is still under wraps. And, and I think it's going to be A24, but they're not copping to it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, there's a lot that's opaque about that strategy right now. But, you know, as long as it gets released and, and gets to qualify, then, you know, it's... it's yeah, no, it'll be, no they're, they're definitely, they have awards publicists working on it. They're going to qualify it. But There is another movie on here that... You know, they should be farther along than they are if they want people to see the film. There's another movie on here that I still haven't seen, but I keep hearing people rave about, which is Honeyland. Did you happen to catch that one? I haven't seen that yet. It's definitely yeah. on my list of things. They, that, that's the kind of movie where it's like, it, I mean, Neon put it out, so it wasn't like buried, yeah. but it, it is going to need to be reintroduced to people. You know, that it's, it's, it's a kind of film that's going to need that to be kind of pushed in, in front of people more and more because it sounds like it really is a, a, a filmmaking first kind of a thing like a beekeeper in Macedonia is not an easy selling point on its own so it really has to be kind of discovered or rediscovered the seeds it's also the Oscar uh, submission from that country by the way it's a very very interesting choice in that respect and then we we have uh did we do the whole lay man's portrait of a lady thing last week well I think we we sort of teased it and and as it turned out um uh lay man's yeah So you are you are in favor of this decision, which is controversial. <laughs> I want to talk to you about this, Eric, because while we were at Telluride, 
um, you know, I was aware that they had booked Portrait of a Lady, not Les Miserables. And, uh, you know, it, it, in New York, I think, also has done the same thing. And, and it's like, what's wrong with Les Miserables? It was my favorite movie at Cannes. I loved Portrait of a Lady. And it would have been a strong submission for the Oscar. Don't get me wrong. It would have done fine, period, love story, good, good specs all around. But Les Miserables is the first African Oh, no, listen to me. The first black filmmaker to be submitted from France. That's a big deal. A lot Wait, that was your favorite movie of Cannes over it Parasite? It, well, I had seen, I saw Parasite later. So when you saw it, it was a pretty fair. It screened very early in the film. Parasite is, is up above everybody. Uh, you know, nothing compares to Parasite. But, but this one is really good. And, and people seem to dismiss it as though it was just a police procedural where the actual skill involved in putting this together, making it have extraordinary documentary cinema verite reality, making it riveting and dramatic and exciting. And, and you're totally embedded with these police characters who are uh, in this neighborhood trying to outrun uh, all the uh, the folks there who are after them. It's a, it's it's an amazingly well wrought movie. Mm, it's well done. I agree that I think the ending is astounding. It's a little heavy handed in parts, and you have to admit it's a bit first derivative. First time feature filmmaker. Yeah, it's got that element to it. It's a first feature, whereas Celine Sciamma is one of the most respected filmmakers in France. Absolutely. So I, I mean, you can step out of the politics of what's been going on here. You know, obviously it wasn't that long ago that France submitted a woman director with Mustang, but but really just looking at the caliber over the years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like this isn't, but, but I do think that portrait of a lay on fire is actually a better film. So I guess if they feel like this has a better chance of getting nominated and that was the motivation. That's That's what they're going for. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good call in that way. I really do. And and then it'll get nominated and then it'll lose to parasite. So everybody's going to lose to parasite. (laughs) We can, we can proclaim this now. Hey, I'm rooting for Parasite to go all the way to Best Picture. We'll I mean, you never know what, what could happen at this point, but we do have a pretty good sense and of what. Motivar is playing very well, and that's yeah. going right. to. So the next step is to talk about New York Film Festival, which is opening tomorrow, and we're both seeing The Irishman tomorrow, and we're both writing about The Irishman. Bright and early in Alice Hall. <laughs> Three hours and twenty minutes. I have to tell you. The, the amazing thing about that's fine. I can take a long movie. I've, I've sat through eight hour Lob Diaz films and all that kind of stuff. I've done my time and whatever running time can be, whatever it is. I will tell you, I read, I heard you paint houses, the book this is based on. And um, I'm very curious about how this narrative is assembled. I mean, Frank Sheeran is told like, me that it's not a very reliable narrative. Well, that's kind of what's amazing about it. I mean, the comparison has been made to Forrest Gump in the sense that this this guy basically positions himself as being up close with Jimmy Hoffa and all these other Russell Buffalino, all these other major kind of mob characters and all the union politics of the 60s and 70s. And it's not really clear. He's a very unreliable narrative. He takes credit for killing Jimmy Hoffa. His argument being that, you know, he was, he was so close with the guy, which seems to have been true. So, but it's, it's a riveting piece of storytelling. That this is a true story. But it, even if it's not, it, I do feel like on some level, it's a, it's a terrific way into looking at a very divided 
moment in American history. I mean, the guy was a World War II vet. He came out of that very shaken. He saw like 400 days of combat or something. And, and so his evolution into this hitman is, is a terrific journey. I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much people are sort of into that kind of introspective psychological journey or whatever it is based on how people have been describing this movie, as opposed to say the kind of flashy Goodfellas mob movie, which this obviously is not. So, so it's, it's a gamble. It's an interesting um, thing to think about. When uh, I mentioned to someone today on our staff, someone who is a total film lover, loves movies. And I said, I was going to go see the screening at, you know, and, and sit there for in the screening room trapped if you like. Right. Hours and 20 minutes. This does not, like you, this is fine with me. I have no issue with this. I'm fine. This person said they wanted to wait until they could see it on Netflix. And I went, whoa, this is the world we're in now, where a lot of people may make that decision. Rather, I mean, and risk. It's going to be up to the critics to tell them whether they have to see it in the theater or not. And I, I'm beginning to wonder, I was also at a dinner last night where everybody wants to see Jojo Rabbit. They don't care if the critics didn't like it. It doesn't mean a thing to them. They are more eager to see that movie because it won the audience award in Toronto. Well, I think you're talking about two different things. By New York. We should take this one at a time. One is, is the, the waiting to see something in theater. It's kind of a thing. And the other is, you know, just how much are critics having can having an impact on the I mean critical enthusiasm can can make a big difference but it always depends on the profile of the movie too something like Jojo it's almost like it's 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 not that it's critic proof per se but it has a it, it hasn't been universally derided and it has a certain kind of underlying appeal that it's fun but also edgy and it's this likable auteur type it has of character. A quality that is a good quality for any movie to have and so does the Irishman which is that it's um it's people are curious. They I mean, that, what it is. Yeah, I think that's 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 worth. Whereas something like with the Irishman, although someone pointed out on Twitter, kind of hilariously, the, the trailer for this is like reminding you of the films that Martin Scorsese directed, you know, as opposed to just letting his name alone sell it, which is kind of disconcerting. But the Irishman, it's kind of like you on some level there is an expectation that you know what you're signing up for. And um, maybe that's not the same kind of incentive. I mean, going to see a mob movie in theaters isn't as exciting as something a little bit more cutting edge. And so in that sense, perhaps it is the ideal Netflix movie and the diehards who need to see it in theater will go and do that. Exactly. There's not necessarily something wrong. There's room for both of those kinds world, of things. I mean, you and, you and I, again, are, are not... I would suggest to you that the world that's going to go see The Irishman in theaters is older. And that is the world we live in. Well, so are the characters in The Irishman. I mean, you know, that's the profile of that movie. When they're, when they're really young, they're in their 50s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see how all that stuff plays out. Honestly, it's like, I don't, if the effects aren't great, it may not ruin the movie, but it, it certainly will. I'm you know, about that, it may, it, the problem is there's been so much media hype around the term de-aging and, and specifically as it's been tied to this project for so long. So if it doesn't deliver, that may distract from other aspects of it. Speaking so. of which, I have, was not invited to a screening of this, but apparent, I'm, the reason you can hear me typing is that I am pulling up Gemini Man reviews because they came out today and they weren't very good. Yeah, I mean the thing about Gemini Man, you know, they've been they previewed it for pre, for some press it's but not 33. for 33. 
but it's opening. There was some like fan screening in Budapest or something. And then, uh, so, so we had a review out of UK as a result of that, because that was the only opportunity to get the film covered. And, um, the, the reviews are, I think suggest that the film is, you know, the technology is, um, is kind of like in the last one with, um, with Billy Lynn's halftime walk is that, is that uh, the frame rate thing really gets in the way of whatever else is going on here. And Will Smith yeah, is pretty good. But... They're all trade reviews and they're all negative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it says mixed for two of them, including Ella. Kim. Yeah. I, I think that it, on it's some level. Out of 33. <laughs> yeah. I think that on some level, it's um, it's. I'm still looking forward to seeing the film. I think that on some level, it's like you have to applaud Ang Lee for trying to figure out new ways of of making movies and keeping the medium relevant. You know, relating to some of the he stuff. Believes. He believes. He believes. But great um, thing, the stuff, the footage I saw early, and again, I didn't see the whole movie, but I could see that that the actual. Uh, two characters and the VFX that went into making one younger and the other one older, that wasn't bothering me. What was bothering me was the fast frame rate, which I think looks horrible. And yeah. in my eye, I'm not happy with it. But I mean, Peter Jackson did this with his Hobbit movies too. It's really right. annoying. So I, and this when Billy Lynn's halftime walk, sometimes when it was dark, it looked okay. If you went into sunlight, it looked horrible. I'll see the movie. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, one step at a time. Where they're going to show it in all of its uh, glory so to speak. Yes. <laughs> but there is a movie opening before that, which is Joker. And that's also going to come to the New York Film Festival on Wednesday. I may or may not. I'm kind of curious about how it's going to play there. I may, I may try to go see it again there. But man, I got to tell you, everybody's talking about this. Well, you're uh, our critic, David Ehrlich, um, whose review I profoundly uh, disagree with in this particular case, but he did predict the uh, the idea that it would incite people to uh, behave badly. Yeah, it was basically him and Stephanie Zaharik had very similar reactions in, in, in the sea of praise, I think, were, were able to kind of pick up on the cultural challenge that this movie has and that it, it may be empowering to people who have, you know, crazy thoughts and could incite people to violence who identify with the Joker. I think the problem I is... how that's going to be. I mean, the Joker himself is so profoundly mentally disturbed and so abused and, and you learn in the course of the story yeah. he is, you, you you really you really can't imagine anyone identifying. No, I think you're you're missing the point on that one. I think you're missing the point. We I I agree that when we watch the film it makes the case for how somebody can reach a, a, a very terrible point. It's a very tragic transition. There's a point that occurs where he no. starts to commit violence and it yeah. makes feel better That's yeah I, I, and i and i think also it's like it's okay. it, it does it That's does right. the film is sensitive to what happens to this guy even if it's not making apologies for the decisions that he makes and comeuppance it's questionable whether he actually receives comeuppance without spoiling anything too too directly so what i would say and this is something i was some other people were asking me about this recently is there's two different things going on here one is the movie itself, and the other is an incredibly dangerous cultural climate. We have gun control issues, we have issues of mental health, and we have you know raging online communities and conspiracy theorists who now feel more empowered. And those are two different things. If a movie is likely to 
trigger any of those kinds of people to acting violently, then we should be cognizant of that danger and respond accordingly. If we need extra security or whatever it is, we need to monitor that stuff. That's a societal problem. It's not something that we should necessarily pin to the movie or say, you know, the movie shouldn't be made or something like that. I agree more. We have to be nuanced about that, though, because I think that it's, it is important to acknowledge that people see a danger there for a reason. They're not just pulling something out of thin air. Well, the movie itself is a reflection of what's actually going on in our culture. And so it, it, to the extent that it's showing people what's happening um, and they're responding to it, that's a good thing. I guess the question is, if this movie opens and nothing bad happens, does Joker then continue to coast along? Or is this kind of dark storm of a conversation around it going to hurt the awards chances that you, know, you laid out Wow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of different things have to happen. Uh, we have to see how it, it's going to be big. It's going to do well. Um, it, it could be a record opener for October. Um, it, it's a, it's, a, it's going to be, it could be 125 million opening, which would be enormous. Uh, the record is 80 million at this point with it. Um, so we'll see um, how far it goes. Uh, remember that at this time last year, A Star is Born came out of Toronto looking pretty damn strong. And by the time it got to the, to the awards race at the end of, of January, it wasn't looking so, so good. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, it's, it's actually kind of fascinating because you, you, really? we, we started born followed a similar pattern in that it went to Venice. In this case, it, the film was in competition at one Venice. I keep thinking what would have happened if they had done, treated this less as like a film festival success story, kind of a movie and more as, you know, comic book movie done in all media, let the marketing drive the hype and basically like showed it to the press, you know, a day or two before it came out. They could have contained a lot of the conversation around the film. That's an interesting point. We won't know, but it is interesting to think about in this particular case study, what's happened by virtue of trying to put this kind of... I'll tell you why they didn't do that. It's very apparent to me from all, you know, first of all, they went out and did the New York Times with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, They did a big... uh, Telegraph story. Now, both of those backfired to a degree because in each story, there was some resistance from Joaquin. He did these interviews before uh, the big success in in Venice. Now he's much more um, happy and calm because he knows he's a success. Um, But he he like walked out on one of the interviews and that became part of the narrative. And and so but they were obviously building up big um, anticipation for this movie and making it into a must see as a smart adult film and the person who really wants that is Todd Phillips. You can tell that he's coming from a place of proving that he's not just the guy who made the hangover. And I'm not sure he should be wearing that on his sleeve. Yeah, it's a little when the commercial directors try to, you know, it's like you don't have to like write auteur on your shirt for us to to get it. Yeah, but, I mean, that was sort of my fear about the movie overall, by the way, was that I was afraid it was going to be sort of like art house in quotation marks, but it actually was better than I was expecting. So oh, no, it's a good it's a really good movie. And I'm, but I am curious to see it a second time. Um, what are, uh, I'm not going to get into it now. Um, I'm going to see it on Saturday and look <laughs> at it again. And see yes, we both need to see it again. What uh, what the uh, what the uh, how it plays with the audience? And exactly. I will say I went to see Ad Astra last weekend for a second time in in, in a multiplex, and um, some audience members cheered when this trailer came up. 
So, you know, it's just anecdotally, you can kind of feel it in the air that in spite of whatever the, the media narrative is around about this thing, the, the, the hype is, is incredibly strong. So that's something you can't discount. Um, by comparison, Judy is opening this week. I would say the hype is not necessarily quite as strong with that film. In a way, you could argue that the uh, Telluride Toronto boom boom uh, amplification that occurred on that movie was very effective and they were turning people away at an academy screening and they loved her and she got the three minute ovation in Toronto. Renee Zellweger is back and um, I got to sit down with her and go over her six year hiatus and, and her digging into Judy Garland and singing six songs and all of that. And it was really fun. fun there. So, yeah. I mean, the, the, the narrative with that one is, is all about, you know, great comeback, strong performance, not such a good movie. So, not such a good movie. And the reviews on that one are in the sixties on Metacritic. So it's I was among them. Yeah. But you know, you could go back to Julianne Moore and Alice. I mean, there are any number of, of, if, if the narrative is strong enough and the performance is strong enough, then the movie's going to do just fine. And I thought Julianne Moore and Still Alice, it was like, that movie was okay. You know, I, I was, uh, this feels more like Cake to me and the whole Jennifer Aniston thing. It's not where, as bad as that because Cake mm, was kind of cheesy. It gets close. It's, it's, this movie's got some pretty cheesy <laughs> moments in. Come I'm on. Gonna, I'm not going to make, no, I don't think the, the flashback works at all. Um, uh, as long your your point that you make in your review is that as long as she's got a microphone in her hand, she does just fine. Yeah, I could have watched a whole movie of that. That would have been great. So I guess next week um, we'll get a chance to talk about The Irishman. We'll have plenty of time to process that movie and uh, see what the rest of the fall portends before you uh, speed through New York and, and catch the centerpiece buzz and all that stuff. So I'll be there. The other thing I did, I did. Um, see since Toronto. Um, did you did you see the laundromat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might even find a review that I wrote about it. It's somewhere <laughs> out there in the ether. Yeah, I know it was a lot. The real truth. I, oh, by the way, I had a conversation with with, with Warner Brothers about uh, this was amusing. They ran um, a quote from David Ehrlich's negative Joker review, but they were misled because the headline was actually very positive. And I was misled, too. I said to David when I came out of the movie, um, I, we're going to agree on this one. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And then I read his review. Because I don't read the reviews before I see the movie. Well, that's an interesting I phenomenon. Either. I it's, wait until I see the movie. Then it's I read understandable. It. It's, you know, in the last couple of decades since we've gone into more of an online culture, I think a lot of people have that sort of impulse. But, you know, at the end of the day, as long as... Um, you know, you're, you're paying close attention. You can see where the marketing hype is drawing out from these things. And hopefully a quote in a, a ta- in a, in a trailer or something isn't going to tell you the whole story. Joker. But. No, Joker and Judy are two examples of movies that need reviews. And I will go yeah. back and look at your laundromat review. But I didn't like it at all. It was not a good movie. Well, yeah. uh, I like to report a lot more. Well, I, I haven't seen that one, but... And I will say the one thing I'll say about Laundromat Burns and the same producer Steven Soderbergh. But the one, one thing directs the report and Soderbergh directs the Laundromat. Yeah, one thing I'll say about Laundromat is that uh, it, it's it's kind of silly, but it's it's silly with a purpose, and and uh, there are two different conversations there too. One is 
the filmmaking, which is kind of all over the place, and the other is the intention of it. And, you know, if this thing's going to go out all out on Netflix and get people to understand more about money embezzlement and, and, and offshore accounts and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, there are worse things that can happen in this world. So. All right. But what he was doing there um, was trying to feed me spinach, and I... Uh, Eat your damn spinach. <laughs> no, he didn't succeed. The report gives me the real story of what happened there and I am enlightened and I am not <laughs> as though I, I uh, had to swallow my porridge. I'm trying to make the report not turn into this year's the wife, i.e. the movie that I know I should see because it's in the conversation, but I keep avoiding. Why are you resisting? I, we'll see. I don't know. It's a busy season. You know, I, I'm trying to stay awake for all of it, but are you resisting all- it because it stars in Ed Benning? Oh, no, come fighting? on. Come on, you know that's not why. All right, Ann, I'll see you next week in New York. You're trying to run away. Good luck. Uh, I'll find you soon enough, and I'll have more to say about that. Maybe not about that. <laughs>